The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Steve Hoffman to today's show. Uh, Captain Hoff is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, partner at uh, Founders Fund, uh, an LP in August Capital, and also author of the book, Make Elephants Fly. Steve is also the captain and CEO of Founders Space, one of the world's leading incubators and accelerators with over 50 partners in 22 countries. And Steve has trained hundreds of startup founders and corporate executives in the art of uh, innovation. So, uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So, Steve, I'd like to start with your long and winding road into the world of technology accelerators and incubators. So walk us through the early days and then bring us up to date. I myself am a startup founder. So I did three different venture-funded startups early in my career. I went through lots of good times and lots of hard times. So when entrepreneurs are struggling, I personally know what it's like to be an entrepreneur and to think it's just impossible to keep going. After I completed my third venture-funded startup, I began to help my friends here in Silicon Valley. They would just come up to me and they'd say, Steve, Steve, I know you raised money. I know you, you know, did these startups. How did you do it? How did you get going? And so I began to help them over coffee. We would just go out to coffee shops and I'd give them advice and work on their business plans. And that kept growing. More and more people kept coming to me. I started a blog where I began to post answers to all the different entrepreneurs' questions. That blog became Founders Space. And then I started to do in-person meetup groups, which we called Founders Roundtables, all across Silicon Valley. And then those began to spread. We did them in New York and Texas and Los Angeles, far away as Singapore. And as this began to grow and grow and grow, it turned from a hobby into a full-time occupation. And that's when Founder Space was really born. And we got our own space in San Francisco, launched our first incubator and accelerator. And then we've been growing globally. And now we have over 50 partners in 22 countries. And that shift to being a formal accelerator incubator, how long ago did that, did that uh, formal transition take place? It was three years ago. So I've been doing Founder Space for six years. For the first three years, it was gradually becoming transitioning from hobby into full-time occupation. But upon year three, we basically saw the opportunity and we had so many startups coming to us asking to be part of our incubator and accelerator. That's when we launched. And these international accelerators and incubators you've set up all over the world, really. Are they a direct part of your organization? Are you using a franchise model, a partner model, or, or all of the above? All of the above. <laughs> We're very flexible because when you're doing business in foreign countries, it's always a challenge because there are local laws, uh, local ways of doing business, different government officials you need to collaborate with. So our model 
has basically always been to have a local partner. With the local partner, we do a lot of things. Some of our local partners are other incubators and accelerators. So with them, we do exchange programs with the entrepreneurs. We'll send our instructors abroad uh, to teach. Uh, They'll send their startups to Silicon Valley and we'll help them launch in the U.S. All sorts of things like that. Uh, A lot of times they work with Founderspace, but they keep their own brand and their own operations. In other cases, we actually set up Founderspace as a brand and then we staff it and also work with local partners and grow it in that market. And we've been doing a lot of that right now in China because China is such a huge market that we've set up founder spaces in Shanghai, Beijing, and their biggest college town called Wuhan. And then we plan to launch in four other cities within the coming months. So Chengdu, Shenzhen, Xi'an, and Nanjing. So we're very busy in China. A lot happening for you in China and indeed the rest of Asia. So One thing that's intrigued me is your ideas about the process of innovation and what makes innovation effective in startups and scale-ups as well as larger corporates. Um, I'm intrigued to see if there are any international variations you've picked up. Is successful innovation different in China, different in Japan than it is in the West? The core elements of innovation are similar everywhere. A lot of it's an approach that you take, as well as a process you go through. So those don't differ at the core, but how they're manifested, the type of products that come out, uh, the type of the way you approach the market, that becomes very different. So for example, a product in that would sell in China isn't necessarily a product that would sell in the United States or Europe. Uh, the market is different. The people are different. They have different infrastructure. Like in China, they have a a chat system called WeChat, which is used for everything. It's used for all their payment. It's used for marketing. It's like it dominates uh, Chinese e-commerce. So if you have a plan in China, it will necessarily have to involve a WeChat component, which it wouldn't in the US and Europe. Uh, Yet the process, the core process of innovation is the same. Basically, at its core, innovating is about doing what we call a cycle, an innovation cycle. And this cycle is true universally, as far as I can see. And I travel all the time. I've been traveling. Last year, I traveled 70% of my time working with startups all over the world. And the innovation cycle at its core is this. You come up with an idea uh, that you think will work and you want to test it. So you devise as simple a test as possible to get as accurate data as you can. You run out, you do an experiment quickly, you gather results, you analyze those results, and then you adjust your hypothesis and your direction based on that, and you come up with another idea and do another test. This is the innovation cycle or innovation loop. And it is what startups go through over and over and over again until they figure out the right product market fit. And this works with any type of product, whether it be a a service-based product, a a software product, a hardware or infrastructure product. This process works in any one of those examples? 
it does work in most products that startups would do. But I'll tell you where it breaks down. So it breaks down when you have big, expensive projects. So if you have a low-cost project that you can get out the door within six months, maybe a year, Innovation Loop works really well. But if you have a huge infrastructure project where you are building, you have to do a massive amount of infrastructure for, let's say, an energy project where you are building thousands of windmills. It's really hard to devise an experiment <laughs> at a low cost that you can run through in a couple weeks for these bigger projects. And those bigger projects tend to be very risky and very capital intensive. And actually, they're not the type of projects I recommend most startups do, unless you're somebody like Elon Musk. If you're somebody <laughs> like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, well, then you can do a big project like launch rockets into space or you know, start an electric car company. But those tend to be much harder and much more difficult. And a lot of times you just have to take a wild bet and hope they work. And I can relate to your point on the lack of innovation in... Um... Uh, utilities style businesses because many many years ago I worked in a utility company and I can uh, definitive, <laughs> definitively say there wasn't uh, a, a lot of innovation going on in in that particular business. But uh, anyway, bringing ourselves up to more modern times, you've got this um, quite strong perspective on unicorns. You've stated that you can tell at a really really early stage which startups will go on to become unicorns. So what are the traits you believe signpost a, a likely unicorn, even in the very earliest stage of business? Okay, yes. This is the challenge for every investor. Every single investor would love to spot the next unicorn when they're just a tiny company, <laughs> when they have even no product or a product that just launched and isn't growing like crazy. That is very difficult. And even myself, having worked with hundreds of startups and seeing those that fail and those that succeed, I have trouble doing it. So I'm not saying I have a sure-proof method, but I can up the odds based partially on my experience and partially on a set of rules that I follow. And I'll give you those rules. So the first thing I look at when I look at a startup, and we say this in Silicon Valley, is I look at the team. And the reason in Silicon Valley, really smart investors pay attention to the team is because when a startup is young, everything changes. You know, the market will change, their product will change, you know, uh, uh, everything about the company will be different six months later. But the one thing you're usually stuck with is the team. If the team changes, the startup usually falls apart. <laughs> so you don't really have much left of your investment. So we look closely at the team. And when I look at the team, I like to look first at the CEO because the CEO is, will usually make or break the company. And the CEO, but you know, how do you tell if it's a great CEO? If this is you know, the next Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Ma or one of these incredible people who builds this huge organization, you can tell from a few things. You can look at their past experience you know, did they work for a great company? But you got to be careful because not everybody that works for a great company like Facebook or Google is a great entrepreneur. You can look at their university and education, 
But, you know, not everybody who went to Harvard or MIT is naturally cut out to be an entrepreneur. Some of them are better for researchers or, or other roles. And then the thing that I like to look at a lot is who did this person bring onto the team? Did the CEO attract people who could have gone out and worked for Amazon or worked for, you know, IBM or Tencent or one of these amazing companies, but they chose instead to work for no money for this tiny startup because they believe in the CEO. So part of being a great leader is in, I would say the number one thing to being a great leader of any company is attracting great people. Because no matter how great the single individual is, they can never build a billion-dollar company by themselves. They only build that company by attracting lots of amazing people and getting them in early and then building the structure. So if you can see the CEO brought in these incredibly talented people who really believe in the CEO and believe in the vision, then you know you have a good basis for the startup going. Now, that's it's just one element of many that we look at, but I will quickly go through the others. We also look at market. We want to see that they are, they are focused on a market that's big enough to grow a big company. If the market's too small, it's like trying to grow, you know, raise a whale in a fishbowl. It will just never happen. So we want to see a path to a larger market. We look very closely at their product. We want to see a product that is very usable and user-friendly. And then we also look at the product market fit, meaning does their product solve a real problem? Is So there's so many startups that have really cool products, but when you go out to the customer, they're what we call nice to have. The customer will say, yeah, that's really nice. I, I love that. But they won't pay money for it and they won't use it consistently. So those products are dead on arrival. So we really want to see that there's a strong customer demand for what they're doing. And if there isn't, then they need to do what we call pivot. They need to change direction quickly because my cardinal rule of doing a startup is that you can never create demand. A startup is tiny. A startup doesn't have any money or resources. A startup never generates demand. What a startup does is it finds demand. A startup is an explorer. It goes out there and discovers demand and meets that demand. And if the demand isn't there, the product idea is dead. It doesn't mean the startup is dead. They can come up with a new idea, but that product is dead. One more thing I'll cover is uh, we look at the design because design is incredibly important. Uh, design innovation is as important as technological innovation and business model innovation. And we want to see that the startup is innovating, that they are doing something different than everybody else. And most startups, honestly, don't have enough money to innovate on technology. Technology takes years to develop, you know, to invent a new technology and bring it to market. So most startups are innovating on design and business model. That's what they're doing. And we're looking at those innovations to see if that startup really has something unique, something different than the competition that will allow them to leapfrog everybody else. Give me an example of a, of a great business that's progressed through your founder's space that really perfectly 
demonstrates all these traits. So the great leader, the vision, who's attracted superb talent into the team, fabulous market, superb product, leading edge design. What's a great example of pulling all of those different attributes together and coming through founder's space to begin to win on in the global market? Well, let me start with a couple. So I work with lots of startups, and a lot of them have done really well. We recently, in our recent batch, had a startup called Ecubot, and what they do is very interesting. So they are the first startup in the world to actually allow a trading of ETFs. Those are exchange-traded funds. So they created an ETF, a fund in the stock market, that all the trading is done by AI. And the team was incredible. The CEO was great, super bright, super smart. Um, They came out of Berkeley and Stanford. They had just enough experience. They had worked in the real world. They understood markets. They understood how everything worked. They had the right technical backgrounds to actually pull this off. They had a deal in place with IBM where they're using IBM Watson's platform. So they didn't have to build all the AI infrastructure. They were smart startups don't try to build everything. What they try to do is take as many pieces that are already built and put them together in a new way to open up a new opportunity. And that's what they did. They basically came out with an AI-powered ETF that was basically a fund that would buy and sell stocks on the stock market automatically, all through the AI. And when they launched this, because they were first to market with this, and AI is so so trendy right now, they caught the buzz, right? They caught the wave. I call it waves. There's these waves of innovation, waves of technology, and kind of trends in society that are reshaping society. And the press, they love it. So they just jumped on it, which is what you need as a startup. So you need, basically, to succeed as a startup, you don't have a marketing budget. You don't have much money at all. You only have your idea, your team, and hopefully something new. Well, they had all the right elements. They had something new. It was using AI, which is really hot right now. It was tapping into financial markets and fintech, which is also really hot. And it was addressing a pent-up demand for people who wanted lower-cost trading. People love ETFs themselves have been surging in recent years. People, more and more ETFs are coming on the market, but there had been no AI-powered one. So by coming out with the first one, uh, they caught the wave. And they got written up in Bloomberg, CNBC, like Wall Street Journal, everywhere. And immediately, in order to make a fund work, you have to get people to invest. They got a huge amount, millions and millions and millions of dollars pouring into their fund, even though they had no track record, even though it was brand new. And nobody nobody had even tested. uh, I mean, they had tested the AI, but there had been no real world test of the AI, uh, but it didn't matter. And that's a great example of a startup that can go basically from nothing all the way up in just a matter of months. It was unbelievable. And when we worked with them, we had that early sense, wow, out of our our batch, and we do different batches of startups, like 20 startups at a time, we go, this startup is going to go. This is is really all the elements, like I talked about just just previously, uh, lined up here. 
I'm just waiting for them to launch their uh, cryptocurrency trading fund, and <laughs> then uh, then I'm all in. Ah, it's not cryptocurrency. This is traditional stocks and U.S. dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been I've been actually very wary of a lot of these cryptocurrencies, these ICOs, and I would encourage everybody to only invest in them if you have money that you would bring to Las Vegas. Basically, money you can afford to lose. <laughs> don't don't bet your house, don't bet your kids' college fund, you know, don't bet your retirement on these cryptocurrencies because you may be disappointed. You mentioned you had a couple of examples of companies that even in the very early stages ticked all of your boxes. So is there one maybe more from the enterprise software or SaaS part of the market that you could uh, walk us through? So there is a, another company, and I'll tell you their evolution. Basically, what they wanted to do was speed up the encoding of 4K video. As you know, when you do 1080p video, uh, it takes a lot of time to encode it. If you go onto YouTube or any of these other sites, they've gotten much faster, but they definitely uh, take a while to process them. And companies are spending an enormous amount of money to actually encode these. Well, these guys were, re again, a really smart team. And they had actually developed a business where they had their own custom programmable chip in their own hardware for encoding videos. And they could speed up the process by 10 times. But the challenge they faced was no, it took them a lot of time and a lot of work to actually set up the hardware at each customer's site to do the encoding for them. And it was an expensive process that wasn't scalable. And they had been around trying to raise money for 18 months and they hadn't really succeeded, but they were getting revenue from different customers, but their, their business, it is just very slow growth. And I you know, this was before 4K. This was when 4K was just coming out that I was working with them. So it was a while back. And I was like, well, this is going to be huge. But you have a fundamental problem. What you're doing isn't scalable. It isn't easy to take out to a mass market. You can only service so many customers at a time because you have to do the installation and the maintenance and all this other stuff and integration for all these partners. Let's take that out of the equation. Let's have you have your own specialized encoding server farm and let's put that this the service in the cloud so that enterprises can literally tap into your api and then you do all the encoding for them and they don't have to touch a piece of hardware they don't have to integrate anything as long as they can talk to your api uh, we made that change literally i sat down with them and worked through their business plan with them and two weeks later, they had raised their first $3 million in funding, and they were off to the races. So a lot of times, a startup that has all the right pieces just might not have them in the right order <laughs> or in the right way to present them. And myself, having enough experience with investors and enough experience with previous startups, I'm able to usually spot this and help them get on the right path rather quickly. So you were were able to quickly rearrange the pieces there. That's that's good. Love to hear about your book, Make Elephants Fly. What's uh, the premise of that book and how on earth did you come up with that lovely title? Well, you have heard of making pigs fly. Uh, that's a, a popular expression. And the idea is elephants 
uh, you know, they're, they're huge, they're unwieldy, they're heavy. How would you get an elephant off the ground? It seems impossible to make an elephant fly. And that's just how a startup feels when they're starting out. They have this big idea, which is their elephant, and to get it off the ground, to make it a reality, seems like it's never going to happen. It, innovation is really, really hard. Now, we talk about, we always talk about the success stories, as I just did in this podcast, but we don't talk about all the failures uh, that startups have. So failure is, I mean, for every startup that succeeds, there's at least, you know, 90 that fail. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, the, the failure to success ratio is huge. Some fail like very quickly and you never hear of them. And others spend years and still fail. So in the book, what I do is I do a lot of case studies like we were just talking about where I go in depth into startups and show everything they did, the entire process that they did to be successful and how they were successful. And then I also do a lot of case studies of startups that fail, and I show why they fail. And out of these examples, these real-world examples, I extract the rules by which startups innovate, uh, create new products, and bring them to market. I'm sure that book is now flying off the, off the shelf, so um, it sounds like you've got it, some uh, really actually, interesting stories. It actually it's, it is, it's in, and it's in England, too. So there's a there's a British version of it that you can get. <laughs> I've downloaded my copy off the off the Amazon store already and did, used it for a little bit of research before this conversation. Found it very very interesting. Thank Tell you. me about your plans for the future, Steve, with your own business. Uh, you, do, you work with all of these startups. You give them advice on how to scale, how to innovate. How are you going to scale your own business over the next uh, three to four years? That's a great question. I'm always like, so we're still a startup. Like uh, we, you know, I funded Founderspace with my own money and my partner's money. We took in no venture capital. We didn't need to for this type of business. An incubator accelerator, we had enough to get it started. And then we've just been bootstrapping it. And we've been scaling globally. And it is a challenge. So incubators and accelerators require a lot of personal attention. They are difficult businesses to scale because every time we bring in a startup, we want to spend a lot of time with that startup, which means you need staff, you need a physical building, you need relationships locally in whatever city you're operating. So the way we have found to scale our business is, as I mentioned previously, through partnering. I'm a big believer that you don't have to do everything yourself. You have to know as a company what your core value is, what your core strength, and then you have to leverage what other people are doing. Every time you can go out and bring in a partner that does something better than you, and you can focus on the core, then both sides win. So our core, our core value right now is connecting all of these incubators and accelerators globally sharing resources with them. We have a, a three-month online program that thousands of startups use online, sharing uh, relationships with capital. We have venture capitalists all over the world funding startups. We work with governments in, in 22 different countries, and those governments offer really, many of them offer very generous packages to startups. So like if a startup from the UK wanted to come to China, 
Uh, we can actually get them free funding that a lot of times that doesn't even take equity and get them money and get them set up in a Chinese, in one of our Chinese incubators and have the, have strategic partners to help them launch their product. Of course, their product has to be right for the Chinese market. But if it is, we have all the connections and relationships to make that happen. And then we do that around the world. So we help Chinese startups go abroad. We help, you know, Korean startups go into China or Silicon Valley or move into Europe. So our core value is that as this hub, Founderspace as this hub, connecting both our own incubators and accelerators, as well as third-party incubators and accelerators. Well, and that's how we scale. That's the scale up for us. That's the scale up, a true global network and a big a big um, shout out for uh, partnering there. Lovely. Okay. Well, Steve, we've covered a, a, a lot of ground. We've gone back to um, your earlier days and now we've uh, talked a little bit about your vision for the future. Uh, some really fascinating insights into um, um, how, to, how to spot a unicorn and, of course, how to innovate. So uh, great talking to you. Really enjoyed the time and I wish you your team and the hundreds of uh, companies going through your incubators and accelerators a phenomenally successful 2018 thank you so much i loved it this episode of the startup to scale up game plan was brought to you by alpina search head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high impact senior talent <laughs>